Now that is, we seek to work through uh, passages of Scripture sequentially, step by step, uh, through a book or a section of a book, uh, to see what God is saying to us uh, through His Word, chunk by chunk by chunk by chunk. Uh, And that helps us to make sure that uh, we're all learning what God wants to say to us, and we're learning all of what God wants to say to us. Uh, And I'm not just preaching on my favorite bits and avoiding the bits that I don't like. Uh, And that's always going to be the main way that we approach the Scriptures. But over the next two weeks, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. That is, I'll be preaching on a doctrine. Now, still preaching the Bible, but trying to show what the whole Bible has to say about a particular topic. Uh, so we're going to flip the Bible a fair bit this time, and, and we're going to show little verses on the screen uh, so that uh, you don't have to flick just to read one or two verses or something, you know? Okay? So we'll do that. But there are dangers in this kind of approach, isn't it? Right? It's far easier to take a passage out of context if we're only going to look a little bit. Uh, and I could trick you into thinking the Bible is saying something that it's not. Now, we're not going to have time uh, today to look up every verse in its context and, and show you uh, that I'm doing it correctly. But at the same time, I don't want you to get in the habit of trusting preachers who just jump all over the Bible with this bit, this bit, this bit, this bit, uh, because you don't know if you've been taking it for a ride or not. Right? So, today, more than ever, I want you to take notes, uh, jot down the Bible verses that I refer to, uh, then look them up at home. Uh, to make sure that what I'm saying is, is uh, really what God is saying from them. I won't be offended, I'll be encouraged. The doctrine that we're looking at, the next, or at over the next couple of weeks is, involves the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, today we are looking at the humanity of Christ, the fact that Jesus is a man, he's truly human. And next week we'll look at the divinity of Christ, the fact that Jesus is truly God. Now actually we know these two things are not divisible. That is, when we're talking about Jesus being truly human, the way we talk about it also, in the back of our mind, we know that He is truly God. And that affects the way we talk about this. And as we're talking about Jesus being truly God, at the back of our mind also, we know that He is truly human. and affects the way we talk about that. Right? So we can't really take it, pull it apart and say, okay, today we're just talking about His humanity, and next week just talking about His divinity. But... Those, 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 two, those two things are very enmeshed. But today we are concentrating on His humanity and we're asking, what is the evidence from the Bible that Jesus is truly human and why is it important for us? Why does He have to be truly human? Now, most people today don't find it hard to believe that Jesus is human. Right? They might find it hard to believe He's God, but they don't find it that hard to believe He's human. Human? Of course, like he's human. In fact, in Jesus' day, when Jesus is walking in the streets, he's talking to people, he's debating with people, they're quite happy that he's human. Uh, every time people look at him, they don't think, oh, is this guy human or not human? Huh? They just think human. Okay, more second thoughts. In fact, when he said he'd come from heaven, the Jews of his day grumbled about him. Uh, John chapter 6, verse 42. They say, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? See, at one level, it's, it's just obvious that he's human. Jesus was born. He was born a little baby. Now, at Christmas, sometimes we try and get past the fact that Jesus was born a little baby. Okay, quickly, quickly, go on. Yeah, he was born a little baby. And then he skipped his ministry and his death and his resurrection. 
But you shouldn't go for it so quickly. Stop first and be amazed that the one who actually is God did actually become a real human baby. And in fact, we should go stand a bit, go back a bit further and, and be amazed that he was even conceived. The one who is God became this helpless little thing growing in the womb of his mother dependent on her for nutrition and oxygen and life just like you were dependent on your mother before you were born and when he was born he was a a little baby who cried, who pooed who, who drank his mother's milk just like you did and who grew and became strong, who, who increased in wisdom and stature, Luke 2, 40 and 52. Just like you did. Although some of us didn't get that far on the wisdom bit. Jesus developed. Jesus learned. He was a real human being. Jesus got hungry. Remember when he was fasting in the wilderness? He was hungry. Uh, he, when he, he got thirsty. On the cross, remember, he's saying, I thirst. He got tired. Remember in John 4, when, they, when he meets the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, why is he sitting there by himself at the well? Because he's tired. His disciples going by food. He ate, he drank, he slept. He was really human. And he had limitations. Remember when he was on his way to be crucified? Simon of Cyrene had to carry the cross for Jesus. We don't know why for sure, but presumably it's because he was so weak that he couldn't carry himself. And when he talked about his second coming, there were some things that he didn't know. He says, Mark thirteen thirty-two, but concerning the day or the hour, no one knows, not, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, only the Father. And Jesus felt emotions. He cried at the tomb of Lazarus. He agonized in the garden of Gethsemane. He suffered abandonment on the cross. Then he died. He died. That's what people do. And after he died, a soldier pierced his side and And blood and water flowed out. See, he was really, really human. But then he he rose again. Is that human? Well, yes it is. The plan for humans is what? That we will die and then and then rise again, isn't it? He's just he's the first one. He was fully human. And it's in his human resurrected body he told his disciples, See, it's me. Touch me. See, spirit doesn't have flesh and bones like I do. And he eats fish in front of them to prove that he's, he's really physical in Luke 24. And as a human being, he ascended into heaven. He is both God and man, but He never gave up his manhood in his resurrection and ascension. See, I used to think that Jesus became man at the incarnation, right? When when, when he took on the flesh. 
And then he stopped being man when he ascended into heaven. But, but I was wrong. It's not right. Remember the angel said to Jesus, uh, and the angel said to his disciples when, when Jesus was taken up, they said, one day he's going to come back in the same way as you see him go. Acts chapter 1 verse 11. Ah, just before Stephen was killed by stoning in the early church, he looked up into heaven and he saw the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God. Acts 7.56 There was Jesus. And when Jesus appeared to John in the book of Revelation, John saw one like a Son of Man. Revelation 1.13 Jesus is still human. He's truly man, and in fact, he's the true man. Remember how in Genesis, Adam and Eve were made in the image of God? Uh, back in Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Now, what does it, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, context. And let them have dominion. Over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, of every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. What does it mean to be the image of God? It's something to do with, with rulership, isn't it? It's having dominion over the earth, being rulers of the world under God. And we know that Adam and Eve failed in this task. The form and the image of God in man, is, while it's still there, is, is distorted. It's there, but it's, but it's marred. Where do we see the image restored? Well, look at Colossians 1.15. Colossians 1.15. Coming up on the next slide. It's coming up on the next slide. It's talking about Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. See, what is he doing? Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. The image is marred. And Jesus, he is the true image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. What does firstborn mean? Firstborn, funnily enough, doesn't really mean here, born first. Right? It means the, the ruler, the regent. Right? It's like like if the sultan of a state goes to KL to become the Agong, what does he do? He leaves his firstborn, the Tunku Makota, to be the regent, to look after the state for him, to be the, the ruler of the state. Right? Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. He's the Tunku Makota. He's the, he's the regent of creation. He's the image of God, the ruler over the whole of creation. That is what Adam was meant to be, but he failed. And Jesus is. He's the perfect one. He's a true human. He's the man. Another passage that talks about the humanity of Christ, uh, in quite a bit of it, is Hebrews chapter 2, our New Testament reading today. Come with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Go to Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, and let's look at it from verse 5. 
It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, right, and the somewhere is Psalm 8, which is our Old Testament reading. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. See, the psalm, is been, the psalm has been marveling at the fact that how oh, God would, would treat man so well and make him, crown him with glory and honor and put, and put everything in subjection to him. Human beings are meant to reign over creation. And then he says, look, that's a problem, isn't it? The end of verse 8, uh, uh, halfway through verse 8, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. But, it's not what it looks like now. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Not yet, anyway. We don't see humankind being the image and ruling the world. But, verse 9, But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. See, we see Jesus in the place that man was meant to be. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor, ruling over creation. Jesus rules the world and does what man was meant to do. And he's crowned with glory and honor, verse 9 continues, because of the suffering of death. How does he come to this point of being crowned with glory and honor? He comes through death and suffering. He obeyed the Father, obedient even unto death on the cross, suffered and died for us, because he suffered and died obediently, he is raised to life and exalted and given this place of glory and honor, see? So that by, so because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He suffered, tasted death for everyone, and was therefore exalted and crowned with glory. Because he dealt with human sin, he could take the human place in ruling the world. And then it says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in making, bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. We'll come back to the rest of the verse first, but let's think about this being perfect through suffering. Now, Jesus, of course, has already always been morally perfect. No, no question about him being sinful or anything like that. What is this being made perfect through suffering? It's being brought up to that, to that, to that high place, isn't it? Right? Being from the, from the fetus to the child, growing in wisdom and stature, his death and his resurrection, his faithfulness, obedience, and now being exalted and given that place and, be, and being made perfect and, and, and being exalted as the, the perfect man that rules all things. And the way that he got there was through, was through suffering. He is made perfect through suffering. And, well, God 
thought it was appropriate to make him perfect through suffering. He thought it was fitting, verse 10. It was fitting that he, this is God, by whom and with whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, we can see that God's plan is to bring many sons to glory. Right? So Jesus is the son. He's the one who's being glorified. But the plan is that he's going to bring others along that path. And God says it's fitting that he goes there through suffering. Now, why is that the case? Well, we'll see that by the end of the chapter. Uh, but step by step, uh, we get the argument. It, uh, 4, verse 11, He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. What does that mean? He who sanctifies is the one who, the person who, the one who makes holy. Uh, that, that's Jesus, right? He makes us holy, brings us to glory. And those who are being sanctified, those who are being made holy, that's us, what does it say? Have one origin. That is, we are made from the same stuff. Right? Got to be the same stuff. The one who sanctifies, the one who, the one who are sanctified, one origin. That is why it says, he is not ashamed to call them brothers. For he who sanctifies, he is sanctified of one origin, not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Old Testament verses the writer of the Hebrews is quoting to show the identity between Jesus and his people. Calls us his brothers. Same source. Human, human. Can you imagine that? That's what he's saying. Now, if you're Hokkien, you say, Kakilanga. Okay? Say, look, we are, we are together. We are the same people. We share the same flesh as actually our Creator has taken upon. Verse 14. Since therefore children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things. See, see, we've got to have the same, we've got to be the same, right? And since these guys, us, are flesh and blood, so he partakes of flesh and blood as well. Why? He likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He became one of us so that he could die. He became human so that he could die human. And that was the only way to defeat the devil and free his captives. Jesus lived and died a human being. Not a spirit, not an angel, not something that went out, you know, happened up there. No, no, no. Here. In flesh and blood. Because verse 16, it's not the angels that he helps. He helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Had to be like us. One of us. 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So that he can represent us before God. That he can make the propitiation. Propitiation means what? Sacrifice that takes away God's wrath. He could make the propitiation. And then verse 18, he can be sympathetic to us. Because he knows what it's like to be human in this fallen world. We'll come back to these two verses again a bit later. But you see, it was fitting that God would exalt Jesus through his suffering. Now we know why. Step back and see. Why is it fitting? Because in his suffering, he has dealt with human sin. By his sacrifice, he has defeated the devil. He has been through death, come out the other side. And he is exalted. He can reign as humans were meant to reign. And he can be the one to bring many sons to glory. But it all depends on verse 17. It all depends on being made like his brothers in every respect. He really had to be a human being in order for all this to work. Now there are a number of other passages in the scriptures that we can confirm that Jesus is truly human. Jesus himself calls himself a man. Uh, remember when he's being tempted by the devil to turn the stones into bread, what does he say? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In John chapter 8 verse 40, he says to the Jews, you're trying to kill me? A man who has told you the truth I heard from God. And remember when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost? He describes Jesus as a man attested to you by God. There's no problems with that. Jesus is truly man. Has to be. But by the time the Apostle John was writing his epistle, there were already people who were denying the humanity of Christ. They said, Jesus looks like a human being, but he's not really. He's, he's divine, but not human. I will talk a little bit more about this, these people in a few minutes. But have a look at 1 John 4, where John is writing against them. 1 John 4, it's on the screen. As beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. If you deny the humanity of Christ, John is saying, then you're not from God. If you say Jesus hasn't really come in the flesh, He's just spirit, not really human, oh, it's not from God. Jesus has to be truly human. Now, let me tell you a little bit about those people who are saying that Jesus wasn't really human. Right? But the, the, the word for that is docetism. It's coming up on the screen, docetism. Right? The word uh, docetism or docetic uh, comes from the Greek word dokein. Do, do, dokein okay? means to seem. Uh, or dokeo means I seem. Right? So it seem. In other words, he seems like human. See? See, these guys believe the Greek philosophy. The Greek philosophy that the physical is bad. Right? Spiritual is good. 
physical is bad. Now, this, of course, this develops much later on into Gnosticism and all those, you know. In Gnosticism, you get the, you know, the whole thing that um, the, 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 the creation actually is made by a bad god. Uh, um, so the creator of the Old Testament is, is bad god. Uh, the one you want is a New Testament god who is a different god. Um, but don't worry about Gnosticism. Uh, this is that's just, they've got, Gnosticism's got docetic, docetism within it, right? But docetism is a wider thing. Right, so anyone who's saying, look, is physical is bad, spiritual is good, so Jesus couldn't really take flesh, right? the divine logos wouldn't really become human, he just looks human, he seems human. Right, so if you look from here, you look from here, you look there, exactly la, looks like human, but actually he's not. Actually, he's divine spirit. Now, I don't know anyone who thinks that nowadays. There probably are people who think that. Right? Maybe you go and Google it or something like that and try and find someone. Right? But sometimes um, we also think things the wrong way. Sometimes, you know, in the sense of we get sloppy with our thinking. Um, we don't purposely go and become like heretics. But we, we do get sloppy. And we know that Jesus is God and we kind of forget that he's also man. Um, and we kind of like think of him as like God wearing a mask. You know, like, like those androids. You know those androids? If they look human, they pull down, pull a thing down, and inside, you know, it's it's robot. Okay? I think that's all. Oh, that's Jesus like that. You know, it looks human and then inside, actually he's God. Right? Wearing a human mask or something. No, 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 no. Yes, Jesus is God, but Jesus is truly man. You go all the way in. Oh, that's com- it's truly, truly man. Has to be. Now, let's think a little bit more about why this is important. It's not just some theoretical, theological kind of, oh, yeah, okay, you've got to tick the boxes and don't be a heretic. Why is it important? Well, first and foremost, Jesus has to be truly man for our salvation. He has to be truly man so he can be the representative man in order to save man. Now, we all know about representatives, right? The Malaysian football team represents Malaysia. And so when the Malaysian team beats the Indonesians, then Malaysia has won. And because your representatives won, you got a public holiday. Right? They are our representatives. Now if you're going to represent Malaysia in football, you have to be a Malaysian. Can't get an Indonesian to represent Malaysia. If you're going to be the Malaysian ambassador to China... And you have to be Malaysian. Right? You can't get an Aussie to represent Malaysia to China. And if you're going to represent humankind before God, you have to be human. In the Garden of Eden, Adam was our representative. He sinned and he dragged us all down with him. Jesus is the second Adam.
He is the new representative of all God's people. He is the, he's actually the true man whom Adam was pointing forward to. And he didn't sin. He lived that perfectly righteous life that, that we should have lived, but we don't. Look at Romans 5, 17-19. For if because of one man's trespass, that's Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that's what Adam did in the garden, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That's Jesus' obedience and death. For as by the one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience many will be made righteous. See? Man, man. One man's disobedience, one man's obedience. Jesus, the second Adam, He's the true man, the true people of God, our representative in his perfect life, his obedience. On the same trajectory, he's the he's a true Israel, isn't he? He's a true man, he's a true people of God, he's a true Israel. He's all that Israel was meant to be and failed to be. Right? Israel went through the waters of the Red Sea, came out to be the people of God. God led them to the wilderness to be tested for 40 years to see what's on their heart and fail. Jesus went through the waters of baptism, came out as the true people of God. The Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tested for 40 days and pass. Jesus is what Israel was meant to be. Jesus is what Adam was meant to be. Jesus is what human beings are meant to be. He is the human being who perfectly submitted to God's will. He's the human being who always lived under God's rule. He's the true Israel, the true Adam, the true people of God, the true man. One who has obeyed in our place. The one who has lived the perfect human life. The total human obedience. The sin-free human experience. And so the fact that Jesus is human means He can represent us as human and He obeyed us, or He obeyed God in our place. And He can give us His righteousness. If Jesus was not fully human, then He could not be our representative human. And we would have to rely on our own righteousness before God. And friends, you know, our righteousness is as filthy rags. We would never be accepted by Him. And it's the same on the other side of the equation, in terms of Jesus giving us His righteousness and Jesus paying for our sin. The fact that Jesus is truly human means that He can pay for human sin. We know that, we know that by dying for us, He became our substitute. But he doesn't, he doesn't just take our sin and punishment on himself. He does. But it's a, little, it's a bit deeper than that, isn't it? The reason that he can take our sin is that God has united us spiritually with him. Right? It's like when you get married. If you're a guy, then you get all your wife's assets and she gets all your liabilities. Right? 
Because why? The two are considered one. They're together. And when we're united with Christ by faith, God puts us into spiritual union with Him. What does that mean? That means we have all His assets and He shares all our liabilities. All our sins, He pays for it on the cross. And all His righteousness, that perfect righteous human life that He lived is shared with us, credited to us. Because we are united with Him. We have His perfect life. His total obedience, his sin-free existence. And that is linked to the fact that he is our mediator. Right? 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 5 says, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus. What's mediator? Mediator is one, someone who brings two parties together, yeah? In what sense does Christ Jesus bring God and human beings together? Now you've got to think about it. Now some theologians say this is talking about mediating in the sense that, you know, God is so high above human beings. So high, so different, that there's no way you can possibly know Him without a mediator without someone who unites the the divine and the human together in some way so that the human and the divine together become one and then we can we can have a connection. And and, and there's a truth in that, isn't there? It's true. In in Jesus, we we meet God. We, We truly, truly meet God. We come to Jesus, the man, we meet God. And it's true that so that we are able to engage with God in Jesus because divinity and, and humanity are perfectly united in His person. He who has seen me, Jesus says, has seen the Father. And it's true that the only way to the Father is through Jesus. No one comes to the Father but by me, He says. Oh, that's true. But is that what 1 Timothy 2.5 is talking about in terms of mediator? Well, when it talks about mediator... Oh, Look at the context. Let's open up 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2. One Timothy 2 5 is on page 1194. Uh, let's read from verse let's read from verse 3. 1 Timothy 2. This is good. This is uh, praying for kings and those who live in high, high positions. Uh, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Now, what's the role of the mediator here? How does the man, Christ Jesus, bring God and us together? Well, it's about people, verse 4, being saved, isn't it? And coming to a knowledge of the truth. Christ, the mediator, brings us to God by, verse 6, giving himself as a ransom for all. Which is the testimony given at the proper time. The testimony is what this is. the gospel, isn't it? 
So, the way Christ Jesus mediates between God and man is, is by being the ransom, by saving, by, by, by the cross. Jesus is the man who died to pay the ransom for all men and reconcile us to the Father. Because Jesus is really human, He can be that mediator. One mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. He can truly represent us. He can truly pay for human sin as a human being. The fact that Jesus was truly human means that He could truly bear human sin on the cross. Remember what we saw in Hebrews 2? Go back to Hebrews 2. Flick back. Hebrews 2. Or flick forward rather. 1, 2, 0, 4. Verse 17. Come back to this verse again. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Had, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the servants of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. See that? Had to be like the brothers if he's going to make the propitiation. If he's going to pay the ransom. If he's going to be the sacrifice. Because only a human can bear human sin. Only a human can represent humans under the wrath of God. Only a human can pay for the price for human failure. Now only God can pay for us all. He, only God has infinite worth. But, but if Jesus were not human, as well as being divine, he, he would not be able to bear our sins. If Jesus were not human, He would not be able to be our representative on the cross. If Jesus were not human, He could not have paid the price for human failure. And we would still be lost facing God's eternal punishment. But there is, praise God, one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. You see, it is vitally important for salvation that Jesus is truly man. As the Nicene Creed says, For us men and for our salvation, He came down from heaven and was made man. The fact that Jesus is human is also linked to Him being our great High Priest. Again, as our High Priest, He represents us, isn't it, to the Father. We've already talked about this High Priest thing, but we're going to talk about it a little bit more, a bit broader. Go back to Hebrews 2 again, what we just looked at. Go back to verse 17. It keeps on being that center verse. Therefore He had to be made like His brothers in every respect, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people for because he himself has suffered when tempted he is able to help those who are being tempted isn't that great he can help those who are being tempted because he suffered when tempted he can help us why well first of all because he suffered and made that propitiation he can help us because 
He knows what it's like. We have a sympathetic high priest. We have someone who has experienced human suffering. We have someone who has experienced human temptation. We have a high priest who knows what it's like. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. Just the next page. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Friends, we can come to God in our time of need and He will understand. Not just from the outside, yeah, okay, I can see it, but from the inside. And so we can come confidently to Him through Jesus, our High Priest, who knows our weakness. And furthermore, the fact that Jesus is our High Priest means that He's He's praying for us. Go forward to chapter 7, verse 25. Chapter 7, verse 25. It's talking about His priesthood. And it says, Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. You know, you know what Jesus is doing? When He ascends to heaven... He's ruling the world and He's praying for us. We know people care for us when they pray for us, don't we? And someone says, oh yeah, I'm praying for you. You know, hey, you know, these guys care. Well, Jesus is praying for us. He's concerned for us. He loves us. And He's able to save us completely to the uttermost since He always lives to intercede for us. He paid the price for us once and for all to save us, and He keeps on praying for us to help us to persevere and to save us forever. And our final salvation is dependent on His once and for all sacrifice and His continual intercession for us. Before the throne of God above, have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. Jesus is our human high priest representing us before the Father. Another reason why it's important that Jesus is truly human is that He's the prototype for us. He's the pattern. He's the, he's the front runner. He's, he's the one that we will follow. Uh, two aspects of this prototype kind of idea. First of all, He's an example. 
Right? And 1 Peter chapter 2, actually it's not verse 2, that was wrong. What is it? Verse 21? 21. 1 Peter 2, 21. For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. See, if Jesus is not truly man, then he cannot really be the example, can he? Right? Because the fact that he's human means he can set the standards for proper human behavior. Be an example for us to follow. And so 1 John chapter 2 verse 6 says, whoever, he, whoever says he abides in him, in Christ, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. If we belong to Christ, if we are united with him by faith, if we share his righteousness, all that, then we ought to follow his example. To walk in the way he walked. Live the way he lived. Now, when you hear about following Jesus' example, you've got to be careful, isn't it, about what you're going to follow? Right? If Jesus is an example, does it mean that we should all walk on water and teach in parables and be crucified and rise again on third floor? What is it about his example that we're meant to follow? Well, if you look in the scriptures about it, it keeps on being about character, isn't it? Being like him uh, in, 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 in what we are like. In Colossians 3, for example, Colossians 3, uh, well, you look at Colossians 3, it's all about character. It's all about virtue. It's all about being godly uh, in the way we act. Uh, and in Colossians 3, 8, it says, You must now put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another. Things you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Ah, hang on, what's this image again? You've got your new self, which is being changed, renewed, after the image of its creator. It's coming after the image of Christ, who is the image. Remember Jesus is the true man? True image of God? Well, we are to put on the new self in, in line with the new character. Become more and more like Him. God is molding us into His example. We are being reworked into His image. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 8. Uh, next slide, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 8. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. If Christ is the true image, then what's, what's happening? We are being changed to conform to His image. We are being changed to become more like Him. We care more and more like Him in godliness and character. Those things. We are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And, because He's the prototype, He's the ideal, you see. And, the wonderful thing is, one day we will be conformed to his image. One day we will fit the prototype. One day when Jesus returns and sin is gone, we have our resurrection bodies, we will be like Jesus is now in his humanity. We will be perfected in His image. That is God's plan for us. 
Look at Romans chapter 8. You know, we talk about, we always like to look at verse 28, isn't it? Those, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are coined to, called according to His purpose. And what is the purpose? Those He foreknew, He be predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. He, the plan of God is to make us like Christ. That He might be the firstborn among many brothers. So, that we are to be like Christ. So, so, so Christ is that, you know, Christ is the image, Christ is the, uh, Christ is the ruler. And the goal is for him to be the first one among many brothers who come up like that. See that? And so those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What's our glorification? Our glorification is to be like Jesus. Be. Fitting that image. 1 Corinthians 15.49 Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus. Oh, I love this one. John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3 verse 2. Just listen to this. Beloved, we are God's children now. Yeah? We are God's children now, yes? And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. So that is our blessed hope. That is the thing that we look forward to. One day, when He appears, we will be like Him. We will be conformed to His character. And we will rule with Him. Because that's what man is meant to be. That's what humanity is meant to be. We will be like Him, conformed to His image. We will be perfected, now through suffering. We will be perfected. And John says, everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. See, if you know that in the end you're going to conform to the image of Christ. God is going to transform you into the image of Christ on that day when you see Him face to face. What do you do now? You seek to live your life to approximate that. To go in that direction. To purify yourself as He is pure. To become more and more like Christ in your life now because you know that that is what you're going to be like in the end. Jesus is the perfected human image. The perfect prototype into which we are being conformed. Now that's another reason why he has to be human. He's a human prototype. That's the direction we are going to go. That's, he's the first one of us. And finally, we've come to this one from a few different directions, but I'm just going to pull it together now. The fact that Jesus is human means that God's plans for humankind are coming to pass. Remember Genesis 1? 
God made man in his own image to rule the world and man sinned and instead of ruling the world under God we rebel against him, we're a mess and Jesus is what humans are meant to be and what God's people are meant to be and he's the ruler now over everything. Well, this rulership of Jesus is foreshadowed in the Old Testament. It's foretold in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 7 different beasts in the world in Daniel's vision God's judgment comes upon them power is taken away from them and instead it is given to one like the son of man you know hold that Daniel thought remember when Jesus ascended into heaven the cloud took him away from their sight so imagine you're here, right? You're the, you're the, okay, you're the disciples. Up he goes. The camera's this way. Can't see anymore. Right? What happens? You flick the other camera and you see the heaven side. And what do you see? Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Next slide. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, called the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is the ruler of the world by virtue of being the son of man. The true man. The human one who fulfilled what it meant to be truly human. And you know what? One day, when we are perfected in His image, then we will reign with Him. Even in Daniel 7, you get the hint of that, because if you go to the second half of Daniel 7, where they're, where they're interpreting the vision, what they talk about the Son of Man, He's interchangeable with the saints of the Most High. Isn't that interesting? Because He's the first one, and God is bringing many sons to glory. One day we will reign with Him. And together with Jesus, our human leader, we will fulfill the role that God created us to fulfill. We will be what God created us to be. And we will reign with Him forever and ever. So friends, remember that Jesus is God. But also remember that Jesus is man. He has to be. He's the perfect human. He's the one who represents us. He's the one who always prays for us. He's the one who is the prototype of what humanity is meant to be like. He really became one of us so that we might become like Him. Let's pray.